Now tonight, I want to begin with a uh, often told, I'll call it a preacher's story. This is the kind of illustration that you get out of a, a manual on illustrations for sermons. And it's, of course, not true, but it's incredibly helpful, and you may have heard it before. But I'm going to tell it anyway because I really like it, and I think it's applicable to tonight. So the story goes like this. There is a very wealthy estate owner who spent the majority of his life collecting fine works of art oil on canvas, paintings, a number of things, had a massive gallery of all this stuff. And when the owner of these paintings passed away, uh, his last will and testament was read, and all the other aficionados of art in the, in the land paid close attention to what was going to happen at that estate. And it was decreed in his will that there would be an auction for his paintings. So on the day of the auction, the, the auctioneer set the room up. It had the paintings all around it, and tons of people came. And in great anticipation, they wanted to bid on their various pieces of art. And so the auctioneer opens up the book, and he says, okay, before we get into all the other uh, pieces of work, there's one that the estate owner wanted to be auctioned first. And he pulled out a painting of his son. It was a, you know, not a particularly great painting of his son. It was done by a local artist. And um, he put that up there on the front easel. And he said, okay, who will begin the bidding? And there was just painful silence in the room. Nobody bid. And uh, after a while, he suggested some prices. And finally, one of the estate owner's hired workers who had served him for many years and knew the family well and knew the son said, well, I'll give you $100 for it. And uh, sold. And then he closed the book and he said, friends, thanks for coming today. Um, the auction is closed. And they, of course, objected, raised their hands and said, well, what about all the other artwork? And he said, well, the, uh, the estate owner decreed in his last will and testament that there would be one painting up on auction, his son, and whoever gets the son gets it all. And I like that because of, of course, the double meaning. Whoever gets the son gets it all, right? It's, it's about the benefit that comes with Christ, the Son. So I start with that tonight because we're looking at the idea of being heirs to a great inheritance, co-heirs with Christ. And um, there's a picture, just uh, last will and testament that I put there on the bulletin and on the screen. Um, tonight, what I want to hit are three big ideas. One is how not to become an heir. A second thing is what is the inheritance we're talking about? And the third thing is what is expected in return? So I'm going to look at all three of these things. The first one is how not to become an heir. In that gospel reading that we looked at, we have a ridiculous parable that Jesus tells. And he's telling the religious leaders of the day. And, and it's very clear that that parable was meant to expose them and be a dig at their character. Because we didn't read all the way through what happens, but it, they go on and they keep challenging him because they perceive that that parable was told against them. So in front of everyone, he made up this great parable of a landowner with a vineyard and fruit and these terrible tenants and how they treat his servants and finally that they kill his own son. And he says, and they think, here comes the heir, let's kill him and then the inheritance will be ours. Now, the only way that that would ever be possible is if you did such a massive takeover that you, you took out the king, you took out the laws of the land, you wiped out everybody and you became the next sovereign. In that case, you could inherit everything in the land. But that's not how the parable works. All they do is kill the owner of a vineyard. And, or excuse me, the son of the owner of a vineyard. They don't kill the owner of the vineyard, and they certainly don't take out the law of the land. So what do you think will happen? Well, Jesus in the parable says, he's going to come in, and he's going to destroy those wicked tenants. And then he's going to give it to somebody else. 
He's not certainly going to give it to them. And I love their reaction. Surely not. Right? They're, they're like incense. Surely not. And I don't know if that was, your story's not right, or surely you're not saying that about us, which is probably a little closer. Surely not. We're the religious leaders. We're the lawyers, the chief priests, the elders. We're the ones that God has entrusted with his temple and the worship uh, of, of his um, sacrifices and leadership of the people. You can't tell this against us. So this is how not to become an heir. You don't do it by force. And what we find, and this plays out in our lives and in the world, is that there are rival kingdoms. And God, the, the high king, the great king of all, it says that his kingdom comes with Christ. You know, the kingdom of God is at hand is what Jesus taught. And he is inviting everyone to choose to repent and believe and come under his lordship and his rule and his reign. But what we do in various ways, in various aspects of our lives, is we act like these tenants of the vineyard. And we think, well, I want this blessing and I don't want to do it the way God wants it. You could think of your life and the various compartments. You've got your family life. You have your recreation. You have your work. Maybe you're in school. You have friends. You have a number of other things. And you could look at each of these areas and ask the question, who is the Lord of this area of my life? Am I trying to act like these, these tenants in this vineyard? Or do I see that I'm serving God in all things and he is the one who's supposed to get the fruit? It's supposed to be to him. And of course, being a good landlord... He provides for me in my service to him. But what we do is like thieves, we want to grab onto parts of those things and we want to run them the way that we want to run them, not the way God says they should be run. And so that is not the way to become an heir. So second, what, are, what is the inheritance? What is it that we actually are hoping to inherit? What I find is many people want the blessings more than they want the blesser. Do you want God's blessings or do you want God? Because the inheritance in the scriptures is him. He is the great prize. He is the, the treasure we want. And anything other than him, we cannot be satisfied. And so I think about um, a great building, let's say. Who is greater, the building or the architect that built it? The one that designed it? Or I just was thinking about um, a commercial I saw the other day with Taylor Swift, and I really like that singer because she's so gifted and so beautiful and yet so self-effacing and actually seems to be kind of a servant even though she's at the top of the game. She falls off of a treadmill. I don't know if you've seen the commercial. You know, she's running and it's really cool, and then she trips and, like, smashes on the floor, and it's really great. But I was thinking about that, not because she trips. It's great because she's so humble that she can be self-effacing and yet be so popular and so successful in the world's eyes. But which would be greater? To have a complete box set of all of her music. You get free downloads of all of her music or free access to her. You could call up Taylor Swift on your cell phone and go, hey, Tay-Tay, what's going on? Right? She would be more impressive than the product of what she does. Right? That's always the case. And so God is so much more impressive than the other blessings that he gives. The owner of the vineyard is more impressive even than the vineyard. And what we do is we want, many of us, many times, we want just the blessings. And we think about, you know, let's, could I get, how can I get the blessings but not him? And the scriptures say that he is the inheritance. He's the great gift. I can't um, 
I just can't think about many things in the scriptures without eventually coming back to C.S. Lewis. He just is so profound and has affected so much of my own thinking, and he's done it so creatively. If you've never read the book, The Great Divorce, it's a pretty awesome um, fictional story of the divorce. It has nothing to do with marriage, the separation of heaven from hell. And it's a a fictional story of a double-decker bus that goes down to the lower regions of hell and then goes up to the I guess you could think of it like sort of the entrance plane up towards the mountain of God, which is towards heaven. And he keeps bringing what he calls ghosts up on this bus, and they meet what he calls spirits. Spirits would be those who are alive in Christ and are going to glory in this heavenly city. And ghosts are those who are thin and pale, and they are sort of diminishing as beings because they've rejected God and they're caught up in their sin. And he describes these different ways that people start to live into their own hell and they don't even realize it. And the story I want to share is about a bishop. I mean, C.S. Lewis was a Church of England guy and he gets a dig in on bishops. And this particular bishop got famous and became a bishop because he published something that was heretical, but it was highly popular. And so he got on the speaking tour and he was offered a, a bishop position and was consecrated as a bishop, even though he didn't, he didn't believe the, the, the literalness of God. He thought of God kind of as, a, as just a, I don't know, an idea, a concept rather than a person. And, and so this interaction happens between this, this spirit and this ghost, the ghost being the bishop. And the spirit, I guess, I mean, it's fiction, right? So there are some limitations on it, but the spirits can apparently come sort of down to this place of interaction, which is not biblical. It's a concept that C.S. Lewis has here for the sake of, of liter- literary uh, storytelling. So he says, the, the spirit says, I've come a long way to meet you, speaking to this bishop. You have seen hell and you are now in sight of heaven. Will you even now repent and believe? And then he argues about what it means to repent and believe. And then the spirit says, will you come with me to the mountains, meaning to the foothills of heaven, where you start to go up in towards God's glory? He says, it will hurt at first until your feet are hardened. Reality is harsh to the feet of shadows. He calls them a shadow, these ghosts, because you can sort of see through them. But will you come? And the bishop answers, Well, that is a plan, and I'm perfectly ready to consider it. Of course, I should require some assurances. I should want a guarantee that you are taking me to a place where I shall find a wider sphere of usefulness and scope for the talents that God has given me and an atmosphere of free inquiry. In short, that one... What one, all that one means by civilization, and he says, uh, or the spiritual life, I mean. No, said the other, I can promise you none of these things. No sphere of usefulness, you are not needed at all there. No scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to the land, not of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. Ah, but we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way, said the bishop. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The wind, the free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind. Must it not prove all things and travel hopefully is better than to arrive. So this, this, this bishop is caught up with theological ideas about God, but no interest in God himself. And I'm saying the inheritance is God to get to stand before God and see the face of God and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant for believing in Christ. And what this bishop in this 
fictional story is caught up on is theological banter and discussion. And he eventually terminates the conversation and goes back down to the lower region where he's been asked to deliver a paper on um, what would have happened if Christ hadn't died. So unfortunately, at such a young age, he would have matured and his teaching would have matured and he would have uh, not said some of the things he said. So basically, he goes on to reject Christ completely. This is the trajectory this bishop is on. And he doesn't realize it as a personal hell that he's in. And all of these scenarios set up personal hells that people are caught in because they want something other than God himself. If you get God himself, all that other stuff comes with it, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and all this other stuff will be added to you, was Jesus' teaching. So the inheritance is God, not his blessings, God. And that will set, he will satisfy us to see his face. You know, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to inquire upon the beauty of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Oh, close. I don't have it quite memorized. Eric and I were in a Bible study like, I don't know, 2009 in Sam 2. Just, we had to memorize a bunch of scripture. But that's, that's from the Psalms. But that one thing that I want is to be in God's house and inquire after him. I want to see and worship him and love him. So that is the inheritance. It's God. And now, what is expected in return? Now, I'm going to flip over here to the Romans passage, Romans 8. And Paul says, the apostle says, we are debtors, which means we are in debt. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. And he goes on and he says, um, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we are debtors. We're in debt as people who are heirs and co-heirs to live the spiritual life, to engage in those things that help us grow more and more into Christ-likeness and to let go of the old life, to stop pursuing the desires of our flesh, our sinful nature, instead desire the things of God. Now, this is where the spiritual disciplines come into play. And we hate that word discipline, or you call them spiritual exercises, but this is where choosing to come and worship choosing to read his word, setting aside a time first thing in the morning to pray, last thing at the end of the day. These are spiritual things that help us live according to the spirit instead of the way the rest of the world works. We are actually indebted to do that because of the status we have as sons and daughters of God. And our lives are lives in the spirit. And not only that, but we are called to suffer with Christ. And that's a little bit hard because you think, well, he suffered on our behalf, so what more is there to do? But elsewhere, Paul says that we have to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Not that Christ's suffering was incomplete for our atonement, but that there is still more suffering that will go on because of the clash of kingdoms. So it's like sometimes they talk about the already but not yet. God's kingdom has already come, but God has not yet put all things right. And there is conflict. So if you want to think of it in terms of a timeline, instead of the old covenant time coming like this, then Christ appears and then the, the, then the new covenant timeline in the age of the church here, it, it actually is overlapped a bit. So like Christ comes here, but he's not fully consummated everything. So there's this overlap of kingdoms and there's a real suffering that comes with that because if you pursue God, you are at odds with the world, the systems of the world. Many of the people of the world, they don't understand it and resist it and even will persecute it. And so he's saying, 
you are an inheritor. God is your inheritance and all the blessings that come with being in Christ and knowing God. And yet you have to share in his sufferings. Now his sufferings, of course, will be worse than ours were. And he's suffered on our behalf. But who are we to think that if the master suffered such and they treated him that way, that they're not going to treat us this way, right? I mean, that's the parable of the vineyard again. It's just in backwards order. So the son comes and they kicked him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What if you went then and said, well, I followed the son. I'm here to help the Lord get his, his fruit. I mean, they're going to treat you even worse, maybe. You know, they're not going to have more respect for you than they did for the son. So who are we to think as the servants of the master that we're going to get better treatment than he did? So that's a scary thought when we think about being heirs with him. And yet, when we think about down the road where this goes, it is worth any bit of suffering that might come our way. And so we can, we can hang on because we know that there's even greater things coming. And the love of Christ will sustain us. So Paul ends that chapter, chapter 8, with a great word of assurance in there about the love of Christ. He comes down and he says, in all these things, speaking of the suffering and the difficulties, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a powerful thing that is. So it's a blessing the early disciples considered an honor that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. And um, I, I've recently finished a novel someone loaned me, a big uh, Ken Follett novel called Pillars of the Earth. And it's, uh, of course, it's fiction, but it's loosely related to things that happened in the 12th century in England. And he describes some of the political conflict that was going on and King Stephen and then Emperor, Empress Maud attacking and sort of the civil war that was going on. And there's a monk in the story and there's a number of knights and people. Um, and the reason I bring that up is it was a little bit of a dangerous time because it wasn't clear who was going to end up on the throne. And so if you aligned yourself with King Stephen fighting against Empress Maud and then she was to overthrow Stephen you would now be a bad guy. You'd be on the wrong side of the law. And the other way, you know, if you aligned with Empress Maud and she was to overthrow the king, you know, or was not able to overthrow the king and King Stephen stayed in power, you're now, you know, a, a traitor. You're, you're up for treason. You're going to be hanged. And there is a real conflict happening and there's suffering that comes with it. Now for us, part of this is we know who's going to win. And all we have to do is just look a little bit down the road and see, trusting in faith, believing what Jesus said, that in the end, he wins. And whoever gets the son gets it all. It comes with him. It's part of the inheritance. But he is the great inheritance. So tonight, you know, um, if you haven't been here and you're just um, joining us for a Wednesday, we're preaching through a prayer that we use. It's on the back of your bulletin. It's a prayer that we use after communion on most Sundays. And it's just such a rich prayer. I thought we would stop and look at the biblical support for it and then preach from those texts. So here in Romans 8, we see specifically where the Bible tells us that what it is to be an heir. So we, we pray that, you, um, um, that we are living members of the body of your son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. So for prayer tonight, what we're going to do is we're going we're to have Holy Communion and then the prayer team will be available as usual. And as we think about things to come and receive prayer for. Of course you can come up for whatever's on your heart, whatever you want them to pray for. 
or nothing at all. You can just come and say, I'd like you to pray for me. And they'll pray as the Spirit leads them. However, I thought that prayers for areas of your life where you want to hand back lordship, where you would like him to be the Lord again, maybe where you've been rebellious. I'm not asking you to make a big confession there, but an area where you want him to be the Lord, something that you could hand over to him, where you want to yield to his reign and his kingdom. So take inventory as we, as we come before the Lord and, and break bread together and think about your life. Think if there's an aspect of your life where you want more of God, where you want to see his reign and his kingdom, and you can offer it up, of course, just by praying yourself, or you can pray when you kneel at the rail, or you can go and let the prayer ministers offer that prayer up for you as well. So what I'd like to do now is have a little bit of a time of intercession and then we'll go right from that into um, the Eucharistic prayer. So if you will join me kneeling, let's together pray for the, for the state of the church and for the world. <clears throat> 